This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me as always. We are joined now by Stuart Taylor Jr. He is the author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's University. Stuart, thank you for calling in. Thank you for being with me, having me. Absolutely. So, uh, so tell everybody what the what the book is about. Uh, this is something that deals not just with what's going on on campus, but federal government policy. In fact, the White House and President Obama himself had quite a hand in this. What happened? Yes. Well, for decades, there's been building a, an extreme feminist movement to basically presume every guy who's ever uh, accused of any kind of sexual misconduct by a woman presume his guilt, and also to presume it to be a crime, even if it's clearly not a crime, you know, even if it's just conduct that was consensual but later regretted. The Obama Education Department created in 2011 and since, and the Obama- Trump administration has now inherited, a deeply wrongheaded and costly regime of federally directed regulation of almost all sexual activities on university campuses and often beyond. It's been done in the name of protecting college women from sexual violence, which is a noble cause if it's done properly, Uh, but it hasn't been done properly. The Education Department's Office for Civil Rights has basically forced thousands of higher education institutions to revolutionize their disciplinary processes for alleged sexual assaults. And it's led to dozens, maybe hundreds, of terrible injustices against falsely accused young men. Did you come across the statistic that uh, is often quoted? And did you did you get a chance to dig into some of your uh, other statistics that I'm sure campuses put out there? But the one you always hear about is that one in five women will be sexually assaulted on campus. Uh, that, to me, just sounds unbelievably high in the sense of I do not believe it. Well, I don't believe it either, and of course, I don't think any sane person would believe it, given because we have, we've all been around. But we also, in our book, completely uh, dismantle it, as others have done before, completely discredit it, and show that it uh, that it comes from bogus surveys done by people, private people with agendas, and picked up by the Obama administration, including President Obama himself, has quoted that number. Uh, but in fact, the best federal statistics show a tiny fraction as many women, uh, too many still. Uh, I think about one in a hundred college women uh, rape while they're in college and, and uh, uh, about as many more subjected to some other form of sexual assault, a lesser form of sexual assault. Uh, but that's a small, small fraction of one in five. The one in five comes from surveys where they first they never ask the woman who's being surveyed, were you raped? 
They never ask, were you sexually assaulted? Now, that's what you would ask them if that's what you wanted to know. But the people who take the surveys know that the answers would be a tiny fraction of what they want, so they avoid that question. They ask questions such as, have you ever had sex when you were drunk? And if the answer to that section is yes, they check the rape box. Have you ever had sex when you really didn't want to, uh, even if you didn't tell the guy you didn't want to? Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, they check the rape box. That's how they get the phony numbers. The Obama administration had to know that when they were running out there with that statistic. But I guess they just didn't care. The narrative was too important to let the facts get in the way. That seems to be yeah, that seems to be it. I mean, I think uh, I, I think it's really quite appalling that a man who you know who knows uh, how to deal with facts as uh, as intelligently as President Obama does uh, was spouting this false propaganda. Uh, but he was doing it, and others in the administration, and and a lot of college leaders are doing it uh, because the media, as well as extreme feminists in the Democratic coalition, as well as a lot of uh, left leaning academics are committed to wildly exaggerating the amount of rape that goes on on campus as part of a power play. Now, what are you looked into um, a number of these cases. What are some of the commonalities uh, of the injustice that these young men, we can assume they're young men in this context, uh, these young men are, are suffering on campuses? Uh, what are some of the procedures that they go through and some of the lack of due process protections that they have to handle? a lot of young women um, you know they they, they didn't really occur to them didn't occur to them they were unhappy after some sexual experience it didn't occur to them in a lot of cases that they were raped because they weren't in many cases but then there are university of bureaucrats who hear they were unhappy about some sexual experience who then persuade them oh if you were drunk you were raped so you first you got a lot of cases in the system where uh, in you know in the college kangaroo court system where where the woman didn't really it wasn't really her idea to to phony up a rape claim. It was uh, she was pushed into it by campus bureaucrats. Once in the system, the accused guy has no right to a lawyer, no right to see the evidence against him, no right to know the details of the charges against him, uh, no right to. Uh, uh, take enough time to do his own investigation, no right to cross-examine his accuser, no right to an impartial panel or decision-maker. And so they're thrown into uh, courts made up of uh, decision bodies, made up of people who are totally biased against them in the first place and who have been trained to assume that all males or almost all males accused of sexual misconduct are guilty. And they you know, they'd never really have a chance, even if they're innocent. I mean, not that every single one gets found uh, guilty by the college, but a very high percentage get found guilty, and a very high percentage of those are innocent. What are the uh, what are the recourses that are open to these men who go through these tribunals on the on the campus, uh, which is parallel and separate from the criminal justice system, right? So they just have these campus. Uh, these campus courts, I don't know what we'd call them, or these campus... Uh, it, these campus and it varies. Sometimes they're sort of their panels. Sometimes it's three or four faculty members or bureaucrats. It used to be students, but the students didn't find guys guilty often enough for the people who are running this show. So they've gone away from having student panelists. Sometimes it's a single person, a single sex bureaucrat who's uh, who acts as judge, jury, investigator, prosecutor, handles everything from start to finish. 
the guy's hand, the guy's fate is basically and put in the hands of one person, usually a very biased person. Uh, and and this is part of although the Obama administration hasn't quite didn't quite order that process, they've certainly encouraged that process. And I, I gotta ask, I mean, for the people that are found guilty in these situations, uh, the the consequences for them. I know that there may be this moment where we think to ourselves, well. It's not like the campus can lock them up. But if you get expelled for sexual assault from a, a, a college or university in the country, very hard for you to continue on with a normal life after that. I mean, the consequences are severe, even if you're never found guilty in a criminal court of law. You bet they are. Now, you know, sometimes these things are confidential, so the word doesn't get out on Google that you've been kicked out for rape. But the word certainly gets around, you know, through the campus gossip mill, through social media. It's very hard to get into another college. Uh, most of the guys who are disciplined in this way can't get into another college, or at least not one that they, they you know, that, that they really want to go to. Uh, it can be very hard uh, in the job market, certainly if you ever want a job where you need a security clearance. Uh, it makes that impossible. And there are terrible uh, psychological traumas inflicted on these guys, as there are, by the way, on women who are genuinely raped. The traumas are fairly similar. Uh, depression, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, sometimes even suicidal thoughts, sometimes attempted suicides. So a lot of times these guys... Uh, these guys' lives are ruined, at least ruined for several years and maybe ruined for the long run. Have some of them been able to restore their, well, I mean, not restoring their reputations, even possible, but at least re- restore some sense of, of, of justice after the fact? Are they able to sue? Can they sue the campuses? Have they been successful yes. in that? Of course, the outstanding example of people who were completely vindicated very publicly, uh, they, and they eventually sued, but they were vindicated finally by the criminal justice uh, process were the three falsely accused Duke, Duke lacrosse players a decade ago, and Casey Johnson and I wrote a book about that that sort of uh, uh, led to the one we did on this. But there have been about 100-plus uh, young men who say they were falsely accused or uh, wrongly uh, found guilty by colleges who have gone to court to sue the colleges, and uh, some win and some lose. Um, usually the ones who lose don't lose because they were found actually because the courts didn't believe their stories. They were they lost because the courts just didn't think it was their business. Some judges just uh, quite wrongly, I think, don't think it's their business to, uh, to supervise college discipline. And that that reluctance comes from years and years ago when college discipline was about things like plagiarism, which is sort of, you know, you can see why the courts don't want to get into whether somebody committed plagiarism. But now we're talking about somebody who's being found guilty by a college of something that is, in fact, if true, uh, a terrible crime. And, um, and the courts should much be much more active in policing how the colleges do that. One more for you, Stuart. And uh, Stuart Taylor is the author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Just came out in January. Um, Stuart, you also wrote uh, Until Proven Innocent, right, about the Duke lacrosse case? That's right. Casey Johnson and I Uh, did that. And that was a revelation in terms of the grotesque unfairness. Now, this was not a campus disciplinary process. It was different from most of what we write about. It was criminal justice system, yeah. Yeah, that was the criminal justice system. And in that case, the criminal justice system was perverted by a rogue district attorney who was rightly disbarred in the end. But the common common thread between what happened then and what's happening so much now is is that the, 
the, the, the professors, um, most of them, the college bureaucrats at Duke, the national media, the local media, all rested judgment against the accused young men, all assumed that they were guilty, all, all uh, smeared them as terrible people, and even as the evidence of their innocence became stronger and stronger and stronger and eventually overwhelming, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these guilt-presuming people uh, never quite uh, backed off. Uh, you know, sometimes they quieted down after a while, but they never said it. They were sorry. Stuart Taylor Jr. is co-author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Get on Amazon now. Stuart, great to have you joining us. Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Bye-bye. Team, we'll be back right after this break. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Jim, we're joined now by John Kovich. He is the rock and roll historian and professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, John, thank you very much for calling. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So tomorrow, February 9th, is the, marks the first appearance, the anniversary of the first appearance of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, quite a moment for rock and roll in this country. Yeah, I think it's hard for um, maybe a lot of younger people to understand how influential the Ed Sullivan show was back in those days on Sunday nights. But, I mean, if you think of how many people watched Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl, that kind of gives you some idea of how big that performance was. And you are a rock and roll historian. Give us some of, for people who are listening, what what is the history of rock and roll? What is the background? (laughs) Well, I mean, those of us who who focus on the history of popular music all have our specialty areas. Uh, mine is the history of rock music, and um, mostly we're we're typical musicologists who might otherwise study the music of Beethoven, Brahms, or Duke Ellington, but instead we chronicle the history of rock, trying to pull apart um, legend from actual fact and try to get as accurate a history and an accounting of the history as we possibly can. And the first, if if someone asks you the 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 Godfather of rock and roll, the first great rock and roll band, the first great, you know, what are some of the answers that come to mind? I mean, what if you're tracing this back? Where where did rock and roll really find its birth? Well, uh, it really gets started in the early 1950s in rhythm and blues uh, with a lot of the scaled down groups, the jump blues groups um, coming out of Louis Jordan. Uh, but really, we usually talk about 1955 as being the key date for the birth of rock and roll. And in that era, the first couple of years after 1955, you got to think that Elvis Presley is the, is the biggest thing there. He was just a ginormous star at that time. And 
you know, kind of a dangerous guy at that time. I mean, we often think about Elvis Aloha from Hawaii with scarves and all that as being relatively harmless. But back in those days, uh, he was a threatening young singer of rebellion. Where does the name rock and roll come from? Well, it probably comes from the black community as a synonym for sexual activity. Oh, I was unaware of that. <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, but but the person who claims to have coined rock and roll is Alan Freed, the famous disc jockey who started in the Cleveland area and ended up in New York. Uh, and he, he called his show the Alan Freed's Rock and Roll uh, Show. And so he, if, if he didn't come up with the word, he certainly popularized it and made it what it uh, what it became in the culture. Oh, look at that. A radio host. We're playing an essential role in the spread of culture. Um, so oh, radio, radio is crucial to the history of rock music, uh, really up, uh, up until the advent of the Internet. I mean, radio and access to radio made all the difference in why certain styles unfolded the way they did, because it's all commercial music, and um, you can't have successful commercial music unless you can find a way to get it to people to advertise it, and radio... Uh, really, until the advent of MTV, where it had some competition, radio was where it was truly at. And if somebody asks you for the most influential, see, now I know this is going to get into opinion more than, than history or, yeah, or, yeah. or scholarship, uh, but the most influential rock bands of the 20th century, the, the top five, what would mm -hmm. they be? Well, you got to put the Beatles right up there. Um, sometimes the groups that had the greatest success aren't the ones that end up being most influential over the long run. But in the case of the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, those key group from the 60s, maybe somebody like Led Zeppelin, the Eagles uh, in the 70s, Michael Jackson, Prince, uh, Madonna in the 80s, those groups really were big at their time, in their time, and continued to influence later generations of musicians. And do you have a do you have an all time favorite uh, performer or band, or do you, uh, do you do you like to stay above that fray because you're a scholar of rock and roll? Well, we're supposed to stay objective, and uh, when I teach my classes, I, I tell my students by the time you we get through this class, you shouldn't be able to tell which groups I like and which ones I don't like. But um, on the personal side of it, uh, I'm a big Yes fan, and I am just as happy as can be that they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Probably about 20 years later than they should have, but better late than never. Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin? Which one? I got to ask the question. I'm more of a Led Zeppelin kind of guy, but I really respect the Rolling Stones. All right, all right, fair enough. I had my college roommates were in a band, and that was a that was a, a fierce debate among among them. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. who who was more important in the in the pantheon of rock and roll greats, the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin? I think there's a generational thing too. I think uh, my generation tends to be more Zeppelin, and the one above me tends to be more Rolling Stones uh, based. But nonetheless, here we yeah. are. Uh, what, what do you, let me just ask you this before we uh, come into a break here. What do you think of the status of rock and roll in America right now? It seems like it's how is it doing? Well, I have to say that the, the music scene itself has become enormously fractured, and the Internet has really helped with this because whatever you like, you can find that little place on the Internet that caters specifically to that. So would it be possible to bring as many people together around a performance by Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan or the Beatles on Ed Sullivan as it was back in 1956 or 1964? 
Maybe not. Even those Super Bowl performances tend not to break careers, but rather to reinforce already successful ones. So I see the music world as being very splintered um, and rock as being one of those those shards uh, and doing pretty well, but not the way it was really back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, where it was a lot more central to the culture. If somebody were to take your class, do you guys actually go to a rock and roll concert together as part of the syllabus? Well, uh, well, I'm here in Rochester, New York, which is not exactly the live music capital of the world. <laughs> so we depend an awful lot on video. But I have a lot of students who perform in rock ensembles, both uh, in, in at school here um, as student activities and also part of a course that we offer. We have a, a course where just like you could take orchestra or string quartet, you can take a, a course where you put together a rock band and do tunes. So we really focus on getting the students to perform. All right, very cool. Professor John Kovach of University of Rochester. He's a rock and roll historian. Thank you, sir, for joining. We appreciate it. All right, Buck, my pleasure. Thanks. Team, hitting a break. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Dear, we're joined now by Matt Welch. He is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Matt Welch, our buddy, what's going on? How you doing, man? You know, I'm all right, you know? Chilling like, chillin like a villain, you know? That's something that people used to say in the 90s. I'm going to bring it back. Um, by the way, we just, we just asked somebody a super tough question I'm going to pose to you. Yeah. I don't think it needs much context or explanation. Stones or Zeppelin? Stones. Uh, it's, Look at that. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's tough. I'm currently on the kind of a Zeppelin kick, but what the Stones did between, uh, 68 and 73 is, uh, a level that, uh, Zeppelin couldn't quite ever match. And just so everybody knows, there was a time when our libertarian friend, Matt Welch, was not just, uh, an intellectual man about town, but also had longer hair and was known to play a little guitar in Prague like some sort of European traveling hippie, correct? I have played the Rolling Stones, the, the song Lovin' Cup off Exile on Main Street at probably a half a dozen different weddings, for example. Nice, dude. See? Look at you. Yeah, that's right. You, you bring Matt Welch to your wedding, good things happen. All right, I want to, can I talk to you about a couple of pieces up on Reason.com? I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, let's let's start with this. Uh, I mean, this is just this is just one of those things that you have a, a tough time believing, and you read it, you go, "I guess it did happen." Cops mistake dad for kidnapper and hold him at gunpoint because they've never seen a Tesla. What happened here? <laughs> yeah, so Teslas, uh, which are great and strange and wonderful cars, apparently have a back seat in which a back facing back seat, which uh, we used to call back in the old days uh, the back of the station wagon when I was growing up, and it was the most awesome place to sit. But it's a legit, like, uh, outward-facing seat, and so the dad put his kid in a car seat, as far as I'm aware, uh, in the outward-facing back seat, and, and there were a couple of cops looking on, looking at this $75,000 car and thinking, that must be a kidnapping. It looks so weird, my brain can't compute it, so we're going to uh, uh, register it as a kidnapping. And they, uh, and they pulled, him, uh, pulled him aside and... And uh, and gave them the the, the the run through because they were unfamiliar with the mode of transportation that he was using. 
I mean, if you're going to detain and terrify somebody because of the vehicle they drive, it should obviously be a Prius, not a Tesla, although I know it's a similar idea. Uh, you know what? Or a, uh, a used a Honda Civic, because uh, screw those cars. Enough already. Although that's, uh, that's talk about a 90s reference. That's a, a full-on mid-80s reference, and also a reference to a car that I used to own. Um, so uh, hopefully they, uh, nice. the cash for clunkers got rid of those once and for all. My first, my first car uh, was a was a, a a gift from my parents. It was a wood paneled station wagon with I think it was uh, eighty thousand miles on it, and uh, it was referred to by my my friends and classmates as the shagging wagon. Uh, but it was in fact not a car that if one were trying to use the vehicle for the purposes of attracting the attention of of uh, eligible ladies. I'm not sure the wood paneled wagon uh, wagoneer style is the way to go, but nonetheless, uh, it was it was tongue in cheek on that one. So, uh, tell me nor about Santa my, Monica evicting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. I'm just saying. Nor was my police auction Chrysler uh, K car uh, uh, either uh, with a uh, advanced skin disease problem. So it wasn't exactly uh, babe magnets, but it uh, it uh, serviced a need uh, at the time for sure. Well, you know, I got I got to tell you that you know, everyone, it's all it's all fun and games with the wood paneled wagon until you need to move, you know, some some heavy furniture on campus, and then and then all of a sudden Buck's pretty cool, you know. Then he was like Mister Mister Fancy uh, Buick Roadmaster guy, you know. I don't know if those of you see that's what I had a Buick Roadmaster. If you guys really want to know, which is quite a vehicle. Um, it, it it looks it's a little bottom heavy, uh, and yeah, not it, it handles by the way. Uh, the way I would assume a a an overburdened uh, truck carrying like food and fuel in the third world on dusty back roads, it handles sort of like that. So you know, if, if you go a little too hard in one direction, you sort of skid around. Anyway, good times. Uh, Santa Monica has evicted Airbnb. What is going? On? So wait, Airbnb. Tell people about Airbnb. I'm not sure everybody listening even knows what Airbnb is, and then tell us what Air- happened. Airbnb is, uh, if you own your house and want to rent it out uh, to a stranger for a weekend, you put it up on Airbnb uh, and you rent it out to a stranger for the weekend. Uh, Or if you can rent it out all year if you want to do it. It's just a private kind of using your own property as you see fit, making money off of it. And then as a consumer, you get to go to cities and pay a little bit less than you do for hotels out there. And naturally, uh, the, mo- the more regulated of our uh, cities out there have been the ones uh, that are the most allergic to this uh, practice of people doing what they want to with their own property. And so now we have it that Santa Monica, which is uh, fondly known by my fellow Southern Californians as the People's Republic of Santa Monica, uh, famous for all kinds of incredible uh, laws, including in some places you can't smoke in your own house. Uh, uh, they uh, banned uh, Airbnb uh, for the most part, with very few exceptions uh, there. So now it is officially easier to rent an Airbnb uh, uh, apartment for a while in uh, Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, than it is in Santa Monica, California, which is a you know very nice beachfront uh, community. But uh, in the name of of uh, I, I think the, the the idiotic way that they couched it was they did this in favor of affordable housing because nothing makes housing more affordable than artificially telling property owners that they can't make more money using their own real estate. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch you into Welch wonk mode now for a second. Not that you haven't already been there, of course, but I want to talk about your piece. Meet the free traders who don't like global trade agreements. Who, who are these free traders who don't like global trade agreements, and what's their beef? 
Uh, well, uh, people like Daniel Hannon, the, the great and very eloquent British uh, MP, uh, Ron Paul, some of our libertarian friends, Thomas Massey, another libertarian Republican, there are quite a few people over the years who have said, hey, I'm all for free trade, I just hate the WTO, I hate NAFTA, I hate these things, and they have pretty good arguments against them, which is that you're giving up a little bit of your sovereignty here, you're letting far-off bureaucrats write rules, and some of those rules are pretty arcane and bizarre, including in the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which I just hear now they're uh, thinking about passing a TPP-1 that Australia is trying to push through. Like, now the Trump's out of it. Uh, the rest of the countries are, are starting to rally. So these people for years have stood outside our, uh, our you know, post-World War II ongoing project of, and by our, I'd say, sort of the United States and, and kind of the liberal democratic West has recognized that it's better, not worse, to gradually lower tariffs worldwide. That way you bind countries together in peaceful commerce and transaction, and you get people out of poverty quicker uh, in places like China and India, which has been a spectacular success. But there's always been, there have always been free trade critics, not just critics of free trade, but people who consider themselves to be free trade, but they just don't like all this bureaucracy and all these other kind of global institutions. So the point of my column was to say, to remind these people uh, that, uh, you know what, for the first time since forever, the ball is in your court. You know, Ron Paul was against every free trade agreement just as much as Bernie Sanders was, but he would, he would couch it in, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, at least uh, uh, you know, we're doing this for reasons of, uh, of sovereignty, and, I'm, and I, I really like the principle of free trade. So now with Donald Trump, with Brexit, which a lot of free trade uh, Brits I know were totally in favor of Brexit, uh, because they did, they disliked uh, the European Union and all of its bureaucracy about cucumbers and this kind of stuff. All fine and well. Um, it's also important for Americans to realize and other people to realize that the European Union was actually, in many cases, the most successful free trade and privatization entity that the modern world has ever seen. And I know that cuts against popular uh, thought, um, but in order to even uh, have all these countries get to, into union together, they all had to sell off their, their uh, state-owned airlines, their state-owned uh, TV stations, and all this kind of stuff. So what my column does is just sort of acknowledge this moment and say to the Daniel Hannans and the Ron Pauls and Thomas Massey's more uh, accurately of the world, it's like, okay, your side won. The side that says we're all about nationalism and sovereignty instead of these transnational globalist Davos, Davos people. Um, okay, your side won. I hope that you're exerting your influence over the populists you have hitched your wagons to to continue reducing tariffs, not uh, increasing them. And I have my doubts about whether that will be successful. As a libertarian, a few weeks into the Trump administration, how are you feeling, buddy? How are things going? It's a weird, weird time. Uh, I, I might have mentioned this to you before. I, first, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no fan of Trump. Uh, I don't like his authoritarian tendencies and his big government uh, tendencies, which are legion. We've, uh, we've seen in, uh, in both senses. Um, at the same time, I never would have guessed, really never, that um, any administration, let alone one headed by someone who I'm not a big fan of, would include so many people I know. <laughs> I don't know whether it's like I, I'm the right age now or something, but <laughs> I know people in the Department of Transportation. I I know the, you know a number two as you do as well at the in, uh, at the, the State Department. It's strange uh, to me, and um, so it, it's it's uh, it's a great uh, time I think to be a libertarian because we get to make 
these arguments based on principle, which means on one on any given day, including today, I will say, you know, hell yeah to getting through Betsy DeVos, a just an open, in-your-face education reformer who believes in school choice fundamentally, and I do too. Um, hell yes in getting her through and having an education department like that, and then hell no in you know, uh, banning the travel of, of everybody from uh, seven distressed uh, countries for 90 days in the way that they did that. Um, you know, that's just, that's the life for us. We don't have a natural home. We are critics and gadflies. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs with this. And Donald Trump and Trumpism, which is much bigger than he is, and it's much more than that in just this country, um, is going to be a challenge for everybody's sense of propriety and orthodoxy. And I'd much rather be in a libertarian place analyzing this than in a place that is more housed in a political party, because those political parties are now having to change what they fundamentally believe in. And thank God I do not. And uh, regulations, you think that Trump's actually going to take a hacksaw to them or what? Uh, he seems to be. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it really is a hacksaw. He passed that executive order saying that for every one regulation we're going to adopt, we're going to kill two. And I know a lot of people who are super anti-regulation who, who said, well, that just doesn't make any sense, uh, like just as the solution to it. But I mean, he's appointing critics of his own place. Uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which is a fundamentally libertarian organization, the most prominent. Yeah, that's, Chris, that's Chris Horner's over there, right? We like that guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the CEI just, you know, they might as well have moved their office into the White House, which is crazy talk. I never would have expected that, uh, but that's where Trump is at. Part of this is that people have forgotten that George W. Bush, and the left doesn't even know this still, um, that George W. Bush was nobody's friend uh, uh, for the deregulatory uh, part of conservative and libertarian thought. He came in as a compassionate conservative. He boosted regulations much more than Bill Clinton ever did. He doubled the size of the Department of Education, all this kind of stuff. He was going to be the non-Newt Gingrich, bleeding-heart conservative until 9-11 came, and, and, and then everyone got distracted. Uh, so we haven't had, or people who were uh, into deregulation haven't had a friendly administration for their point of view since at least Ronald Reagan. Uh, which is kind of interesting to think about. So there's all this talent and thought and pent-up kind of desire to do things that have been lying around Washington, and Trump went there and picked those people. Uh, so that is, is very, very interesting, uh, much more interesting than I would have expected on Election Day. All right, Matt Welch, our buddy, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Reason.com. You can read his latest there. Follow him on the Twitter, at Matt what is it? I, 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 I got a yeah. Matt, Matt Welch. Welch. All right, just making sure. Yeah, yeah just making sure. I got it. Uh, I buddy, got thanks for coming to hang out. Ruski. Thanks, Buck. Talk to you soon, buddy. Uh, team, we're gonna hit a break and then we're gonna be right back. Buck Sexton, Buck Sexton. dispensing the truth on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. So, team, uh, please do tune in tonight uh, for the syndicated show, America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. You can go to AmericanNowRadio.com to listen live or get the podcast. That's the best place to go. I think it's easier than to try to find it on the iHeart uh, Radio app right now. So just go to AmericanNowRadio.com tonight at 6 Eastern. 
And uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen last night, please do go and download the show, AmericanOutRadio.com. And you can, of course, download this show, as always, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Uh, so, I've got a very fun show planned for you all tonight. Uh, Trump has tweeted out from his account and then from the official POTUS account that my daughter Vanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. She's a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible. Um, Nordstrom has dropped Ivanka's fashion line under pressure from people that are trying to get uh, boycotts going of anything related to the Trump brand. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised. So Nordstrom has dropped all of Ivanka's fashion line here. This is something you see so commonly uh, on the left, and it, it is really specific to them. They love to do boycotts. And in the case of Ivanka, I just have to say, you know, they're really not hurting Ivanka. Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, it's not nice to have somebody drop your fashion line. But they're they're hurting um, whomever Ivanka employs to be designers, uh, the, the people that have picked up the line at different stores to sell it. Um, that's who is really hurt by these kinds of boycotts. Uh, Ivanka's married to a billionaire, and she is the daughter of a billionaire. Dropping her fashion line is not going to do anything in terms of bringing you know br- bringing her over to your side politically. It's not going to punish her financially, but it might punish some little people along the way. But of course, the social justice warriors never care about the little little folks who get caught up in the crossfire. But I think it's interesting that that. Here you have the President of the United States uh, letting it rip on Twitter, um, saying that uh, his daughter's been treated unfairly by Nordstrom. I have to say, I think he's right. Uh, so, team, join me tonight, 6 to 9 Eastern, AmericanOutRadio.com, or uh, listen on your local station if we are carried in your market. Uh, we have lists on AmericanOutRadio.com of what those markets are. And until, t- until later tonight, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.